but I think there's lots of little things that you have to celebrate along the way when you're an author whether that's handing in your second book or something like that or just getting a nice review or getting a message from a reader or things like that so I do try and take a deep breath and celebrate the little moments as well because the big ones are quite few and far between. Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Now, let's relax on the Convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Rights for Women. I'm really excited today, one reason being uh, I have a fantastic guest host on the podcast and that is Maya Linnell. And the other reason I'm really excited is because Maya is chatting on the Convo couch to debut author Lizzie Pook. Lizzie's debut novel, Moonlight and the Perler's Daughter, is a fantastic rollicking adventure set in the late 1800s in Broome. And I'm going to let Maya tell you a little bit more about Lizzie to introduce her when she comes on. And I'm just going to tell you, in case you don't know, a little about Maya. So Maya is a best-selling author of rural fiction. She lives in Victoria and is a, a wonderful Instagrammer. If you haven't caught Maya's Instagram page, please take a look because she has the most amazing photos of her fantastic property in Victoria where she lives and grows gorgeous flowers, beautiful dahlias in particular that I'm very jealous of and has lovely little lambs and, and she's a baker. She's a do-it-yourself junkie and animal hoarder and is always posting fantastic pictures of her life, her writing, her family and her property. So it's a real joy for me to have Maya on the podcast today as a host. Maya has been on the podcast a couple of times previously talking about one or the other of her amazing rural fiction books. She's this year going to be publishing her fourth book and Maya's books are just really flying off the shelves every time that one comes out you know you see it all over Instagram all over socials and Mayer is just such a fantastic supporter of Australian fiction of promoting reading and supporting other writers in the Australian writing community so I'm really excited to have Mayer here as a guest host today and I've listened to this interview in the edit, during the editing and it's a really great conversation between two authors one who's a debut novelist but an experienced travel writer and the other who is you know soon to publish her fourth Australian fiction novel so it's a, it's a really great chat and I really had the sense that you know there was a, a lovely sort of camaraderie between these two authors Lizzie talks about you know her inspiration for the novel how she ended up with a fantastic publishing deal and has some really good writing tips as well if you listen to right through to the end of the episode so I'm not going to talk anymore. I'm really, really happy to have Maya here as the guest host. And I know that if you're tuning in and listening, you're going to really enjoy this interview. Don't forget, it's also available on YouTube and you can go to rightsforwomen.com 
click the podcast tab and go to the page with this podcast on it. If you scroll down, you'll find the video there, which is, is linked to the YouTube channel. Um, but you can watch the video directly from the Rights for Women website. Isn't technology wonderful? So anyway, without further ado, here are Maya and Lizzie talking about Moonlight and the Perla's Daughter. It's been really interesting and quite discombobulating because it's all happening on the other side of the world without me because the book's not out here in the UK yet. It's not coming out until the beginning of March here. So Australia was the first publication date. And it just feels really surreal because I don't feel like I can fully inhabit it because I can't walk into a bookshop and see it. Or, and obviously because of the time difference as well, publication day, I basically went to sleep in the middle of my publication day, if that makes sense, because it happened late at night here and then early in the morning. But it's been really, really nice. It's been, I've been getting some really lovely feedback and it's just been, it's been fantastic to see how, yeah, people have responded to it. But yeah, I guess I just feel... It's really exciting, but it's quite tiring as well, sort of always thinking, oh, God, my book's out there. And I'm sure you've, you know, when, when your first books came out, maybe you felt the same, but it's, you're sort of almost emotionally on edge the whole time. It's quite exposing. Yeah. You know, I think writing is a very vulnerable thing and it's like, oh, gosh, now everybody can see my insides or something like that. So it's been really exciting, but also, yeah, quite taxing. Yeah, you'll need a really nice break after all the promo periods settled. But then I suppose then your next promo period kind of rolls on, doesn't it? I think UK, I think it's going to roll into to one another. So I think perhaps after that I'll go on holiday or something if I can. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. And then it's coming out in the States in June. But I think hopefully there'll be a little bit of a pause in between. So Good, some nice quiet r and yeah. and I have to write a second book somehow while all this is going on which is feels pretty impossible at the moment but I will get there I'm sure yeah you'll do great you'll it's all in there you'll you'll get it out <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much for joining us on the rights for women podcast today I'm your host, Maya Linnell, and it is a pleasure to slip into the very incredible Pamela Cook's hot seat and host today's new release episode, Takeover. I've been lucky enough to join Pam on a few occasions for book launches for my own novels, so it's a real treat to be on the other side of the desk and talking to the very excited debut author, Lizzie Pook. Now, Lizzie's zooming in all the way from the UK today. Welcome to the Rights for Women podcast, Lizzie. Hi, pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Now, if you like your history served with a side of sizzling adventure, then you're in for a treat today. I will be quizzing Lizzie about her hotly contested debut, Moonlight and the Perla's Daughter, which was acquired in a bidding war between international publishers, which is very exciting and also very rare. So we'll also be talking about the fascinating research that went into this wonderful novel and bringing her cast of characters alive. So firstly, let me introduce our guest. Lizzie Pook is an award-winning writer and journalist. She began her career in women's magazines, covering everything from cognitive enhancing drugs to conspiracy theories. In 2015, she moved into travel journalism, reporting for publications including The Lonely Planet and The Sunday Times. Lizzie's assignments have taken her to some of the most far-flung places in the world, and we are delighted to be speaking to her today. Now, I'm based in southwest Victoria in Australia, but you're in a completely different hemisphere. Lizzie, can you tell us where you're speaking to us from today? 
Hello, yes, I'm um, at my desk in Twickenham in southwest London, and it feels very surreal to be zooming in uh, with you on the other side of the world, but uh, yeah, it's lovely. I wish I could be in Australia right now, but uh, yeah, we'll have to make do with technology instead, so. Fabulous. Now, look, Lizzie, I found your novel, Moonlight and the Pearler's Daughter, intriguing right from the get-go. I loved the, uh, the gripping storyline, the vivid depictions of the rugged West Australian coast back in 1896. And it really, the imagery that you used to paint the picture and, and write this story was absolutely breathtaking, especially for a debut. So can you please give us a little bit of a rundown about the story for the people that are listening in today that haven't picked up a copy of the book yet? Sure. So Moonlight and the Pearler's Daughter is a historical novel set against the backdrop of the dangerous pearl diving industry in 19th century Western Australia. Our protagonist is Eliza Brightwell, a uh, young, strong-willed British woman whose family has sailed across to the remote community of Bannon Bay to set up in the lucrative pearl shell industry. One day when Eliza's father, the eccentric captain of a pearling lugger, goes missing from his ship under suspicious circumstances, it falls to Eliza to uncover the truth of what's actually happened to him. And as she scours the streets of Bannon Bay and the seas beyond, she uncovers corruption, prejudice, blackmail, and lots of long buried secrets. And it is, it's such a great story. It's full of intrigue. And I was describing it to a friend this morning. We go, we go walking in the morning, so it sets me up for a great writing day. And I was telling her all about your fantastic debut and that wonderful bidding war. And I said, it's almost a little bit like Indiana Jones. It's got a real adventure sense to it. Is that the, the model they've been working on, the marketing as an adventure story? Well, what's been interesting is that it has varied from market to market in terms of how the book is um, presented and marketed, which has been really interesting. I was definitely inspired by a lot of 19th century adventure fiction when I was writing this book. But while I was reading those books, it became very, very clear that they're very, they're extremely macho. You know, there are men everywhere in those books. There are hardly any women. And if they are women, they're just sort of wives or lovers or, you know, barmaids or something like that. So I wanted to create this story that felt very much like that, you know, and I guess uh, there are sort of Indiana Jones-esque parts to it, Pirates of the Caribbean-esque parts of it, but at the centre is a um, very strong-willed woman. And so, yes, in some territories, so for example, in the US, it's very much being sort of put forward as a feminist adventure story or even sort of a feminist Western, you know, in line with things like the TV show, which was on Netflix about a mining community where all of the men die in a, in a mining accident. And so it's this, it's this sort of frontier town run by women. So that was definitely something that inspired me. But I also think it's, it's lots of other things. It's sort of a love letter to the natural world. It's an exploration of grief. And it's a, a book about family ties and father-daughter relationships and friendships and things like that. So there's, there's definitely plenty of adventure and plenty of heart to it, but I think there are lots of other themes in there as well, hopefully. <laughs> yes, I definitely agree. Now, talking about your main character, Eliza, I found she was really strong, really independent, really, really brave and uh, very intelligent as well, and I loved that in her. She was an instantly likeable character right from the, you know, the very first page, the very first chapter. It was someone 
that as a reader, I, you know, was cheering for her right from the start. You can tell that she's up against the odds, but she's, you know, stepping boldly and uh, going out there and doing what needs to be done when she's searching for her father. Going to your your research for this one, Lizzie, you've actually got her based loosely on an actual real person, haven't you? She is very loosely based. Well, the idea from, for her, for my Eliza, came from a real life Eliza. So I was in Fremantle with my sister and we had a spare afternoon. And so we were just strolling around and we came upon the Maritime Museum in Fremantle. And so we went in and thought, well, yeah, let's have a look and see what's in here. And tucked away among the ships and sort of old anchors and those sort of displays was an exhibition about a family of British settlers who had, in the 19th century, sailed across to Shark Bay in WA to set up in the pearling industry. And the, the patriarch of this family, Charles Broadhurst, was not a particularly nice man. You know, he was... He was interesting in that he pioneered lots of things. He, he helped pioneer the, the hard hat diving suit and even things like guano mining, which is the mining of seabird excrement. So, you know, like a, an, an interesting man, but he was known to mistreat his divers and exploit Aboriginal labour, which was, was something that happened in the early family industry. However, the matriarch of this family, a woman called Eliza Broadhurst, was immediately fascinating to me. She was unlike her husband. She really challenged cultural conventions at the time. She was an early feminist. She established a, a school in the outback. She survived shipwrecks and storms. And there was a, a family portrait and on her lap was a young daughter, an infant daughter in sort of a white christening dress and big black heavy boots. And I just loved the image of those two you know, women and, and, a, and a young girl sort of in this harsh landscape and how they fought back against what perhaps was expected of them at the time. And so that just became the loose inspiration for my Eliza, just in terms of the sentiment of having these really strong-willed women at the time. So that was that was the spark that made me want to put a, a strong-willed woman in this, in this environment. Fantastic. And so when you're going, you know, when you went across to WA and you, you did your research, was that specifically with this book in mind or were you on holiday and it caught your fancy and then the book came from there? What was the process with the, with the inspiration versus the, the book? It's definitely an inspiration process that's happened over several years. It wasn't sort of one thing and then the book came to me fully formed as much as I would have loved that to happen. But yes, yeah, so it was this first instance in Fremantle was just a holiday. And then on subsequent occasions, I went back and on another trip to Fremantle, I came across a book in a secondhand bookstore called Port of Pearls by Hugh Edwards, which was a history of the first 100 years of Broome, which was an early pearling hub. And I, I didn't think that much of it. I put it in my bag, sort of went on my, well, I bought it, I put it in my bag and then I went on my way. But little did I know that that would become one important resources in terms of my research. So that really piqued my interest in Broome. And so my husband and I, on a subsequent trip, we were driving all the way up the West Coast of Australia. I love Australia. You may notice the theme. <laughs> I've, I go out there as much as I can because I just adore it. And Western Australia is very close to my heart. And we were driving up the West Coast and we ended up in Broome. And Broome is just the most ridiculously beautiful place you could ever see with its 
um, bright red pindon soil and it's milky turquoise seas and it's sort of sprawling mangroves. It does, it looks like a sort of paradise, but it has a really dark history in its pearling history. And I think there's sometimes perhaps a romantic veneer too that, that people might assume goes along with pearling because pearls are a very beautiful thing and it's often seen as, yes, quite quite a romantic pursuit with dashing male adventurers. But no, this is a really, really dangerous industry. Men in their copper helmets would descend to the seabed and come up against all sorts of peril. So they would face uh, sharks or crocodiles or sea snakes, or they would get diver's paralysis, something that we now know of as the bends, or their air pipes would become entangled in the flukes of whales and they'd be sort of dragged, torn through the water until they drowned. So that fascinated me. And also this, this was a really exploitative industry too. You know, as I just mentioned, necessarily dashing male adventurers going out and sort of just being gifted pearls from the ocean. No, it was something that was built on uh, uh, particularly in its very early stages, forced indigenous labour and indentured labour. So that really interested me too, that sort of dark part of history. But also Broome was a place, it was almost like a gold rush town in the 19th century. People from all around the world descended on it in pursuit of this pearl shell. So you had people from America, Europe, Asia, uh, the Caribbean, and they were sort of all rubbing up against one another in this tiny little red dust town. And so that absolutely fascinated me. And so Broome and the other early pearling hubs, places like Cossack and Shark Bay, became the inspiration for my fictionalised Bannon Bay. And yes, yeah, so I, I wanted to put a British settler family in that environment, but also write about the other sorts of people that would be in that town too. And I can really get a sense that you've got this passion for this history and it's just driven you throughout the story. I loved the snippets of information throughout I liked how they were just really nicely sprinkled and I would come away and I'd read a chapter and, and then I'd go and, you know, make dinner for my children. I'd say, did you know that if you came across a saltwater crocodile, best thing you can do is stay really, really still. <laughs> like these different <laughs> from your book, I had no idea about the, the pregnant women being used in the pearl diving. That was not even on my radar. So thank you for educating me about my country's history, little things that I have no idea about. It's wonderful. I think that's the best thing about being a historical fiction author, because in your, you, know, it, you have this privilege of being able to immerse yourself in a subject that you find personally fascinating. And it's your job to uncover as much as you can about it. And I was really lucky to be able to speak to some really, really interesting people during my research for this book. That crocodile anecdote actually came from a man called Graham Kenyon, whose grandfather was a crocodile hunter. And he told me about a time when his granddad ended up in the water in, in this sort of croc-filled swamp. And he pivoted onto his back and just floated there and stayed as calm as he could until the water carried him to the bank and he was able to get out. So actually, and as I have found uh, with writing this book, the truth is often stranger than fiction. And there's lots of stuff in the book that is based on real accounts of things that happened in the waters off Broome or things that people have, have told me, you know, either their 
ancestors' time in the pearling industry or their relationship to the land and creatures that live on the land and stuff like that. So it was a real joy to be able to sprinkle that throughout the book. And I think that's something that as a historical fiction author, we're always striving to do, is not to overload the reader with information and research, but to, to sprinkle it through and and put it alongside things with an emotional pull so readers don't feel like they're just being lectured at or, or that they, they feel that it's a reference book. So I'm, I'm glad that hopefully that that's worked. But yeah, I'll never tire of the research process that goes into writing. It's my favourite part of it. Oh, that's fantastic. So what is one of the weirdest things that you uncovered uh, in that whole research process? Is it is it possible to single out a single thing that was just blew your mind? I mean, obviously, you've got some really wonderful snippets and I'm happy if you share one of those because they're all great as well. There was so much stuff, but there was also stuff that I just couldn't include um, because it just didn't work in the story, but that I found personally fascinating. So even in terms of things like, so, so, when, so when these divers did go to the bottom of the sea for shell, they would wear a big copper helmet and they had to wear sort of knitted underwear because the pressure of this canvas suit would um, leave ridges on their body because it was so, you know, the pressure of being in the deep was, was so strong. But even just in terms of how that copper helmet came to be, I found personally interesting. So it's, it was actually a British man in 1820 who came up with the initial idea of the copper helmet, the hard hat diving suit. And it was because he was at a friend's farm and there was a fire in one of the stables and the horses were in danger of being burned to death in this stables. Nobody could get to them to free them from this fire. And so he took the helmet from a suit of armor that was in the hall of this farmhouse, put it on his head, took a hose that was connected to a pond, disconnected it and just told them to pump air through it, put that into the helmet and just walked into this sort of blazing stables and freed the horses. <laughs> and so that was how this, this suit that actually came to revolutionise the pearling industry in Western Australia came to be. You know, it has its roots in Whitstable in the UK and a man saving horses from a fire. And that's just one example of what I think is where the truth is stranger than fiction. And you really uncover these things and think, wow, did that seriously happen? <laughs> that is amazing, Lizzie. Wait until I tell everyone about that over dinner tomorrow night. They're gonna... <laughs> Very entertained. Now, I think, you know, people will be immersed in the rough and the raw side of Australia's history when they do pick up this book. So there's a lot of treachery, there's the deadly feuds, there's the frontier rules. Was it confronting looking at this really raw and rough time in Australia's history? There's a lot of violence, there's some nasty things that went down that were very happily covered up and, and probably not come to light. I've always found that part of British Australian history very interesting. And I think it's something that's really, really important to explore. And I don't think necessarily that we should shy away from something because it because it makes us feel uncomfortable. I think it's almost our duty to explore this part of history and certainly, you know, my ancestors and the relationship between white settlers and um, indigenous communities during settlement or, or invasion or whichever word you, you want to use to describe it. So yes, it was confronting. And there was stuff that I did uncover during my research process that was just too shocking to include in the book, because I wanted to pay this part of history attention and give it the 
give it what um, it deserved. But I also didn't want it to be an exploitative book. I didn't want to sort of make that the main focus because I, I think a book needs to be entertaining and and revealing. And I was lucky enough to work alongside cultural consultants while um, writing the book. But Pigram very graciously came on board as a cultural consultant and was able to advise on any sort of cultural sensitivities and things like that. And also the Kimberley Aboriginal Law and Cultural Centre were really helpful and did a very generous sort of consultation on the manuscript too. So yes, it was definitely something that I wanted to explore um, and it's definitely something I've always been interested in. And yes, uh, I think it's important that that part of history is acknowledged. And I think you've done a really good job. The referencing was very detailed in the back of the book and the acknowledgements as well. So I'm sure that everyone that's been involved is, is very proud of, of what you've come up with in the, the end result. Thank you. Definitely a collaborative effort, as all, all books are. We rely so much on other people's generosity and knowledge and, and skills. So I'm really grateful to have been able to have that, that opportunity to work with them. Yeah. Now, I'm really intrigued to hear the backstory about the, the whole bidding frenzy that went on for this manuscript. But first, I want to turn the clock back a little bit. And can you tell us, did you always want to write a novel, Lizzie? Or was it always your dream to be doing the magazines that you did or something altogether different? I think growing up, writing a novel was never presented as a job. You know, I never, ever thought that you could actually make a living sitting and writing a book. I thought that writing books was for men in their 70s who were very rich and sort of reclined on their sofas with cigars and things like that. It just was a completely different and ungraspable concept. But I did love stories growing up. I wrote poems and little books and would make them into, you know, little um, hardback books for my family and my my dad my mum and dad were really avid readers and my dad would go to the library every weekend and come back with bags of books for us to read and it was just the most exciting thing but yes eventually I ended up in journalism because that was something that I was really interested in as well I loved music and I wanted to be a music journalist and go on the road and so that was my sort of first foray into the writing world being an entertainment journalist and then moving into women's magazines and then progressing into travel writing and then eventually writing the book. So it was always sort of a pipe dream, but it was only when I, while I was a travel journalist, I went through a period of ill health and was forced basically to, to slow down and to stop. And it was only when I had that period of sort of stillness that this long-held pipe dream of writing a novel actually sort of properly came into focus and I started applying myself and my energies into that. So it was a long time coming in terms of writing a book, but I just think we end up where we're supposed to be. So <laughs> I'm, I'm very grateful to be doing this now. I still can't believe that I get to do it for a living. It feels totally surreal. <laughs> it is a bit of a pinch me moment, isn't it? <laughs> it totally is. <laughs> Which leads us beautifully as a segue into this whole bidding war. So you wrote the manuscript over quite a few years, especially given all that research that you did. What was the actual progression from having this draft manuscript then to having these beautiful six-figure advances thrown your way? Tell us about that. It was really destabilising, I would say, because obviously when you're writing, there's, a, there's something very freeing about it because you think, oh, nobody's ever going to read this. So you feel free to just write whatever you want to write and there's no pressure or anything like that. 
But once I had written multiple drafts of this book, because there were multiple drafts to it, my first drafts tend to be incredibly messy and I do a lot of self-editing before they, they go anywhere. But I, I decided to give it a bash and, and submit it to agents. And I was really lucky in that the process of hearing back from agents was very quick. I had rejections, like everybody has rejections because that's part of being a writer and we wouldn't be writers without them. But I'd had a few um, agents interested quite quickly and ended up signing with my wonderful powerhouse agent, Maddie, within about a week of the book going out. And so that was really surreal. And I was sort of constantly in this state of, it's almost like, you know, in soap operas when the screen goes all blurry and it's almost like this dream (laughs) sequence. I didn't feel fully able to inhabit it because it felt so unreal and I think that's just the, the the brain's way of coping with things that doesn't really know what to cope with so I worked with my agent on the manuscript for a few months and over the summer we sort of gave it a bit of time to breathe and then we went uh, well my agent went out with it to the publishers in the September and we heard back from our first publisher within 24 hours and it was honestly a whirlwind after that and my first offer that came through was my Australian my own Australian book deal from Penguin Random House Australia and it just felt so fitting and so lovely that my first deal was with Australia when Australia had been obviously such a key part of the writing of the book and obviously it's set in Australia and and, you know it always has a part of my heart so yes it was it was very quick and then and then the UK auction followed soon after that and then the preempt from the US and Canada and then subsequently other territories but it's just you know Uh, any author who's been through the same thing knows it's so nerve-wracking and you're just living on the edge and constantly you know checking your phone and refreshing your notifications so I feel grateful for my nervous system that it happened quite quickly but but I also think I was lucky in terms of timings and it's always right place right time your manuscript landing on the right editor's desk when they're looking for that sort of thing and I think also because it did go out during the pandemic and we were all shut up in our homes I do wonder if because it had this quite sort of transportive setting that perhaps that caught the interest of some editors because it was a time when we basically couldn't do anything except perhaps go for a walk around our local park for 30 minutes a day and then shut ourselves back up in our houses again. So, so yes, that's how it happened. And how did you celebrate, Lizzie? Was there a huge dinner? Was there a party with all the neighbours? Or <laughs> Well, interestingly enough, when this was all happening and actually during the final stages of writing the book my husband and I had moved back in with my mum and we were living in my mum's attic bedroom and I was editing this book from my old childhood bedroom I was unwell my job as a travel writer had sort of disappeared overnight because of the pandemic so actually we ended up celebrating just the three of us me my husband and my mum you know we got some champagne we couldn't go anywhere you know just during proper proper lockdown of the pandemic yes we had some champagne and and a nice dinner and then my mum's a very straightforward person so then we just got on with the rest of our day and the rest of our lives so no it was really nice but I think there's there's lots of little things that you have to celebrate along the way when you're an author whether that's handing in your second book or something like that or just getting a nice review or getting a message from a reader or things like that so I do try and take a deep breath and celebrate the little moments as well because the big ones are quite few and far between. Yeah absolutely well that brings me to another question what type of feedback are you getting so far Lizzie because the book's out in Australia now so book bloggers would have had it for the last month or two 
you've got readers that can now pick it up in the bookshops, people that are listening on audio. So what type of feedback are you having? Yeah, I'm getting some really lovely feedback and it's so nice. One of the main things is people saying that they just had no idea about this part of history and not just in the UK, people from Australia saying that as well, which is really lovely to be opening up this this part of history. You know, I'm, I'm not a historian, but to be able to just open the door a little bit. And so hopefully people can go off and do their own research or perhaps visit Broome or, or learn a bit more about, you know, this British Australian history. So that's really nice. But the main thing is people are loving Eliza, which is so nice when your main character is resonating with people and I think that's perhaps because you know yes she is this very strong-willed character but she's also extremely flawed and she is held back by certain things that have happened to her in the past but at the same time she's also propelled through the story by her grief and by by loss and that's something that I really wanted to get across with her and lots of the characters in the book actually lots of the characters are dealing with um, loss whether that's loss of a family member loss of land loss of liberty loss of identity but I wanted that loss to propel them all through the story and make them very active characters and so I hope that that might or has resonated with some people because that's certainly my experience of grief you know after the initial destabilizing aspects of it I do find that it it can be a motivator and it can act as rocket fuel and sort of send us on our way and help us do things that we never would have thought we would be capable of doing and I think that's what is happening with Eliza in the book and I hope that's what uh, readers are relating to. Oh, fantastic. One of the funny characters in there, Lizzie, was the parrot. He's a bit of a kleptomaniac. He's great for comedy value. And I also read in your interview with Penguin that he's actually rooted in fact as well. So yes. I was about yes. So there's, there's a cockatoo in the book called Confucius who almost acts as a silent narrator leading the reader through the story and pointing to certain clues, whether they, perhaps they realise that's happening or not. But yes, he's based on a real bird. So during my research, I came across a, a bosun called Conrad Gill, who was from the Caribbean. He, he went across to Broome in 1900, so a bit later than when my book is set. But he had a talking parrot on his you know he would stroll the streets of Broome with a talking parrot on his shoulder and the men the divers would feed, feed that bird rum and it would sing sea shanties and it would steal money and it would just make a real nuisance of itself and I just loved that and I was completely obsessed and knew I had to sort of immortalize that in my book in some way so there is a bosun character in the book called Reynolds Grant and he has a cockatoo and yes it, it do, definitely does act as comedy value but it also points towards some very important clues Indeed. How did you go about writing from so many different perspectives? Because we're not just set in Eliza's viewpoint throughout the story. We get lots of fantastic different insights, which again, reveal bits of the story that the reader's only finding out as you're handing it to us. How was that experience for you writing from all these different perspectives? Really refreshing, actually, and really nice. And I think it helps with the writing process when, because it almost keeps you on your toes. So yes, there are bits throughout the book that are told from Charles's perspective. So Charles is Eliza's father, and we get access to his diaries. And so there are excerpts from his diaries throughout. And lots of those diaries include interesting, well, hopefully interesting anecdotes about pearling and what the divers came up against, but seeded throughout very important clues in his diaries so 
it was actually a process of reverse engineering. You know, if I realised I needed to add in something somewhere, I would say, oh, you know, we can have that in Charles's diary or perhaps this is better, better coming from Eliza. So I actually wrote Charles's sections before I wrote the rest of the book because I find it easier to do that than chop and change throughout the writing process, you know, inhabit one voice and then inhabit another voice. I found it easier to write all those diaries together. But yes, it was just really interesting to be able to have these different characters and these different voices and certainly kept me entertained during the writing process because for me, the first draft of the book is the hardest part of the writing process. You know, it's, I find it a real slog. I way prefer the editing and the polishing process and making everything to come together. But when you're sat faced with a blank page and you know, it really is a numbers game, it's nice to have these different perspectives to breathe into and keep that energy up. Excellent. Well, I think it really keeps the book flowing beautifully and it, you just cannot manage to be bored as you're reading it, which I think is, is great. Oh, thank you. What you want. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That's the greatest compliment. <laughs> now, we have a lot of aspiring authors listening to the podcast, Lizzie. Can you tell us, I guess, some of the best advice that you received whilst you're writing the novel and then also something that you'd like to suggest to other writers to consider? Totally. So there are a couple of things. Obviously, everybody tells us to read. Read as much as you can. Read in your genre. Read out of your genre. But I'm a big fan of also... Some people not, might not agree with this, but taking a pen and annotating books that you really love and actually pinpointing what it is about that book that is capturing your attention, where, why, what you're feeling at a certain moment. So perhaps there's really high energy and you feel really compelled to keep reading it at some point in the story. What is it about that point in the story that is making you feel that way? You know, and you can put a note down saying, oh, big turning point here or love how this character is introduced here. You know, you're almost doing a sort of casual bit of studying as you're reading. But I think it's really, really interesting to actively notice how readers you love are putting their books together in a sort of technical way. So I think that's really important. Also, <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say this, but there was a great piece of advice I heard that was, your muse is your bitch. So basically, <laughs> you, you tell your muse when to turn up. You know, I think there's there's perhaps this this idea that we should wait to be struck by creative inspiration and the flow of creativity before we can write. Actually, no, I think it's something that you can summon by putting your bum in the seat and starting to write. And you tell the muse when to turn up. You tell the muse when to come to you and when to start. And I think that helps with when you're faced with the tyranny of the blank page, you know, with you just think, no, I just have to get something down. Also, you can't edit a blank page. You can make bad words better. Allow yourself to write a terrible first draft. My first drafts are terrible, let me tell you. And I know lots of other authors who say who are, are totally ashamed of their first drafts and would never want anyone to read it. But trust in the process. You have to get that first draft down and then you can mould it and then you can work. So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to be bad at what you're, at what you're doing because you can always make it better. I fully agree with that, Lizzie. That was one of the key things that helped get me through my first manuscript was you can't edit a blank page. And I think I read somewhere that bad writing is really good fertiliser. So, you know, oh, you totally all that crap <laughs> that you've pumped yeah. out but it's really you can read through it and you can see where you've gone wrong and so I'm fully on board that train 
you can't have good writing without bad writing. You know, yeah. one turns into the other. So, and I think there's something quite freeing about it. I remember writing my the first in, iteration of this manuscript and almost laughing to myself, thinking, no, I can't include this. this. is so, this is too bad. But I knew that I would have the chance to go back and make that better. Absolutely. Now, talking about reading widely, do you have a, a book that you're looking forward to by an Australian author? Do you get the chance to pick up much Australian fiction? I do, if I can. And there are a couple of books that I have uh, noticed recently that sort of piqued my interest. The first one is Everyone in My Family Has Killed Someone by Benjamin Stevenson, which is sort of uh, Knives Out, Agatha Christie, the Thursday Murder Club type book, um, publishing with Penguin at the end of March. I just think it sounds so interesting and the sort of thing I'd love. But there's another book that um, piqued my interest as well called Enclave by Claire G. Coleman which is speculative fiction, which takes us into a future that looks disturbingly similar to our colonial past. And she's a First Nations writer. And I just think that sounds fascinating. And I, and I love reading that sort of thing. So, so there are some Aussie books that I'm looking forward to. But there's, there's so much. And when you're a debut author, one of the best things is that you get to read other people's books before they come out. And that's been such a privilege. And that's been really lovely. And connecting with other debut authors as well has been so nice being able to have that support system because you're thrown into this, this sort of new world and, and being able to speak to other people going through the same thing, perhaps on Twitter or Instagram or other writing communities like that has been really, really lovely. Yeah, wonderful. Now, one of Pam's questions that she always loves asking the people that come on the Rights Women podcast is, what do you think is at the heart of your books? I can make a few guesses on what I think based on, on our chat and, and having read it myself, but what would you say if someone asked you, what's at the heart of your books? So interesting. I think definitely a love of the natural world and it's certainly my experience that with grief, the natural world can have a very healing, healing power. So in this book, there are so many different aspects from the, the birds to the seas to the creatures. And I think that's, that's, it's almost like a love letter to the natural world, basically. Oh, it's such an, what, what would you have said? You said you thought you would have an idea of what it was. I'd be interested yeah. to know. Well, I was thinking, you know, that real passion for history and uncovering something untold. And I think that that grief and that loss, because that does carry through so strongly with Eliza's journey and, and the fact that, oh, it gives me the chills. I don't want to give away any spoilers, but there's, you know, <laughs> there's a really key moment towards the end of the book. And I'll tell you when we, when we shut down the interview exactly which one that bit that is, but I don't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't read it yet. And I just got the tingles when I read that bit. You know, that whole purpose of Eliza's journey was kind of in a nutshell right there. Um, I think I think you're probably right in terms of the grief thing, especially because I'm now writing my second book. And again, we do have a, a very active, very strong heroine at the centre of a world that was is perhaps normally inhabited by men. But exactly the same is that she's driven through the story by loss. So I, I, think, I think you're absolutely right. And I think it's definitely something that's been an important part of my life. And I think, yes, it gives me the emotional drive to put that into my stories. Yeah, I think you, I think you hit the nail on the head. <laughs> <laughs> and, and feminism, strong women, that's, that's really at the core of the story as well, I found, which is what Rights for Women podcast is all about. So perfect. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, I think having been a travel writer for a long time, and that's quite a male industry as well, and you can end up in these very remote parts of the world with just sort of men around around you. And I think that gives, the, or hopefully that's given me a sense of sort of re- resilience and a very strong feminist ideal at, at, at my heart. So that hopefully that will always come through in my books too. Wonderful. There's a lot more to look forward to with your new book coming out. Is that in a couple of years, Lizzie? Are we looking to expect a new Lizzie Pook next year or in the next few years, given the amount of intense research involved? I think it's either going to be 2023 or 2024 because, well, you know how long the the process of publishing is. You can finish a book and then it can take sort of a year and a half or two years to to come to life. So hopefully soon. I've, I've nearly finished the first draft of it which I will be handing in to my editors for them to take to pieces because that's been an interesting part of the process too having four different editors because I have a UK US Australia and Canadian editor who all weigh in on the editorial notes which has been really interesting but also a huge privilege as well to have so many people invested in it and wanting to make it better so yes hopefully that will be out in the not too distant future. Wonderful. So for people listening in Australia, they can pick up a copy of Moonlight and the Perla's Daughters in bookstores now. What's the rollout for the other countries? So it's coming out in the UK on the 3rd of March and then in the US and Canada in June and then subsequent territories after that. Wonderful. Something for everyone to look forward to. Now, where can people find you, Lizzie, if they're looking to join in on your socials or do you have a website that people can go and check out? Yes, I do have a website, which is just lizziepook.com and people can get in touch with me there or I'm on Twitter and Instagram on at lizziepook and please do get in touch, ask, ask me anything. I'd love to hear from you. Beautiful. Well, it's been such a treat to speak with you, Lizzie, from all the way from the UK. It's seven, nearly eight o'clock your time. So we'll let you go and have a whole day of fantastic writing and promo stuff ahead. So Thank you very much to everyone for tuning in to the Rights for Women podcast. If you liked this interview, if you like the show, make sure you share it with your friends, uh, leave a review or go through and have a look at the other episodes. Thank you very much, Lizzie, and uh, farewell from Australia. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4WPodcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women, or find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Have a great week, and remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end. The end.